one of the big reasons I want to write about drugs in the way that I do is to push back on the idea that uh, criminalizing them and, and, and criminalizing the people who do them and who sell them is the right approach to making our society healthy and saving people's lives because I don't think that it is. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. This is your friendly co-host, Zach Siegel. This episode is going to be a conversation between me and journalist Kate Nibbs that we recorded a while ago, actually. Sadly, I had an audio malfunction on my end, and, you know, I really wanted to get this conversation out there, and I managed to salvage the backup file. So you may miss the quality of our fancy microphones, helped paid for by our generous Patreon subscribers. Thank you for that. But I assure you, the quality of the content is as good as ever. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, Kate Nibbs is a wonderful writer and reporter. At the time we, we recorded, she was uh, on her way out at The Ringer and has since landed at Wired. Troy and me have actually both written for Wired in the past, and there's, you know, great editors there who actually care about the science and research about drugs, so check her stuff out at Wired. It's simply amazing how often made-up urban legends and complete non-science still dominates drug coverage, like fentanyl is a WMD, or the kids are doing Narcan parties, or touching something called Grey Death will kill you. And also, while we're at it, let's dramatically enhance sentences for low-level fentanyl possession, because in the past, that always reduces drug use and overdoses without disproportionately targeting people of color. The reason I wanted to have Kate on the show is because her work on supervised consumption sites and also the story of a bizarre, I guess, drug ring that took place out of the Vice Toronto office have really stood out as excellent pieces about drugs from someone who comes from outside of the public health wonk harm reduction Twitter bubble. Which isn't to say that Kate isn't welcome in that bubble. She obviously is. This just isn't her main beat. So, 9 out of 10 times that someone who hasn't been steeped in the discourse for years takes a crack at these topics, it usually feels sort of off. The framing is kind of punitive and judgy, it's pretty light on research, and there's invariably a quote from Sheriff Joe Somebody who is saying how methadone and syringe exchanges don't help people, but somehow, you know, jailing them for possession and forcing them to detox does. So I, I mentioned the two stories by Kate that we'll talk about, supervised consumption and a, a drug dealing ring. And we'll also talk about how she's experienced the aftermath of a loved one's overdose up close, which is one thing I'd like to expand on before we get to it. It's about blame and responsibility and retribution. In America right now, people die from accidental overdose deaths in extraordinary numbers. But increasingly, these deaths are being investigated not as accidents, but as homicides. I'm sure many of you listening out there have heard the term drug-induced homicide before. I've been on a bit of a quote-unquote dealer kick in The Appeal and in Slate and recently on The Young Turks. I've covered how wrong the perceptions of dealers truly are in this country. There's an amazing law review paper that analyzes drug arrests for, for dealing and possession in the University of California Davis School of Law Law Review Journal. Yeah, that's a mouthful. But its title, I love the title of this law review, Sharks and Minnows in the War on Drugs, a Study of Quantity, Race, and Drug Type in Drug Arrests. So sharks and minnows, guess who the majority of arrests target? 
The paper analyzed all drug arrests reported from the years 2004, 2008, and 2012. The data set contained over a million cases and drug quantity data, like the weight of the drugs, you know, grams, ounces, whatever, that was found for over 700,000 cases. So this paper, at the time it was written in 2018, was like the biggest and most comprehensive study of this topic ever. Prior to this, we actually really didn't have a lot of hard numbers about drug arrests. Like people, you know, had the intuition and the hunch that a lot of it was low-level stuff, and, and they're right, but the numbers are, like, worse than anybody thought. So cops, you know, they always have these press conferences where they, they put out all this cash and these bricks and guns on a table and say, hey, look what we found. Like, you're welcome, community. All this bad stuff is off the street now. But those big busts, like so-called big busts, are heavily promoted and publicized all the time. And what it does is really skew the public's perception that these big busts are happening all the time and that they're making a meaningful dent in the overall supply. These busts are super small relative to the overall quantity of the market. They never give you the denominator. There's never any proportionality, meaning we just got 10 kilograms off the street and check them out, they're on this table, but let's not talk about the millions of kilograms that are sold undetected all the time. And so these busts are very outside the norm. And what this Sharks and Minnows paper found is incredible. It's, okay, I'll, I'll just read some of it. Quote, out of over 700,000 cases from 2004, 2008, and 2012, two out of three drug offenders arrested by non-federal law enforcement possess or sell a gram or less at the time of arrest. A gram or less at the time of arrest. Quote, furthermore, about 40% of arrests for hard drugs such as cocaine, heroin, and methamphetamine are for trace amounts, a quarter of a gram or less. Trace amounts. 40% of drug arrests are for trace amounts, less than a gram. That's like a couple pebbles. Like, you gotta be kidding me. It's so wasteful and and, and ineffective and unbelievably disruptive to people's lives to to bust them for trace amounts of drugs. And that's 40% is for trace amounts, and two out of three is for a gram or less. Like, these numbers are obscene. And there's really not nearly enough discussion about how ridiculous all this is, how incredibly punitive and out of proportion the legal system is with respect to drugs. And this is not only a conservative Republican problem. The Democrats are also very bad on this issue. And so let's, let's talk about the Democrats, because there's a big election right now, if you haven't been paying attention, And during the New Hampshire primary debate, uh, former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg was called out for uh, a pretty remarkable disparity in cannabis arrests in South Bend while he was mayor. According to a piece in The Intercept, the racial disparity of cannabis arrests in South Bend under Buttigieg is, quote, worse than in the rest of the country or even the rest of Indiana. That's pretty astonishing because South Bend is like a lefty college town and the rest of Indiana is like blood red. And The Intercept goes on to report, quote, a black South Bend resident under the Buttigieg administration was 4.3 times more likely to be arrested for possessing marijuana between 2012 and 2018 than a white resident. So during the last debate, one of the moderators brought this up, and here's how Buttigieg responded. Incarceration did far more harm. Right. Let me go back to the original question, though. How do you explain the increase in black arrests in South Bend under your leadership for marijuana possession? And again, 
the overall rate was lower. No, there was an the increase. The year before you were in office, it was lower. Once you became in office in 2012, that number went up. In 2018, the last number of year that we have a record for, that number was still up. Yeah. And one of the strategies that our community adopted was to target when there were cases where there was gun violence and gang violence, which was uh, slaughtering so many in our community burying teenagers, disproportionately black teenagers. We adopted a strategy that said that drug enforcement would be targeted in cases where there was a connection to the most violent group or gang connected to a murder. These things are all connected, but that's the point. So are all of the things that need to change in order for us to prevent violence and remove the effects of systemic racism, not just from criminal justice, but from our economy, from health, from housing, and from our democracy itself. Senator Warren, is that a substantial answer from Mayor Buttigieg? No. Warren is right. Yeah, not, not so good. The question is about marijuana arrests, and to dodge it and to justify harsh incarceration, he pivots to violence, which is what Biden did in the 80s. It's what the uh, bipartisan consensus was uh, that constructed these laws that if we crack down on drugs, we will see a reduction in violence. And violence, you know, did go down over time. But not because of, of drug arrests. The, the, the two were connected because you needed to make the case for harsh criminalization of drugs and violence. Nobody likes violence. So violence was a really good way to crack down on drugs. If you just connect the two, then you can justify anything. And so to say that there's violent weed gangs in South Bend, Indiana and that those are some kind of scourge, and that that violence justifies the disparity racially in marijuana arrests just does not hold up. So to hear more about the the flawed dealer narratives and to listen to a a conversation about compassionate, humane coverage of harm reduction policies, here is journalist and writer Kate Nibbs. Today, I'm here with Kate Nibbs. Kate, welcome to Narcotica. Thank you for having me. There's, you know, a few reasons why I wanted to, to talk to you. And I think your, your features and, and reporting about, about drugs and, and addiction over at The Ringer um, have really, really stood out. And, you know, I don't know if our listeners know about The Ringer, but it, it's like a pop culture kind of sports website. And to see these like really, I think, heartfelt and empathetic and, and long pieces about drugs at the ringer was uh, really, you know, surprising. And, you know, there's so much coverage of, of like the overdose crisis and, you know, how people should respond to it in, in the media. And um, so I just wanted to say, you know, thanks for tackling this topic and, and doing it um, quite well. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I feel really grateful that The Ringer lets me write about drugs on a sports and pop culture website. I I sort of think of it as when I'm writing about culture, to me, that means just writing about the way we live now. And, you know, drugs are a big part of our culture. And I think that they should be part of of a conversation if we're talking about like the way people live in 2019, you know? To, I think, so I I wanted to focus on like two stories of yours in particular, and we can sort of approach them from like a a culture perspective. Cause like usually I'm writing about these topics from like a a very specific, like criminal, legal, criminal justice kind of framework or from sort of like wonky, like public health, like, behavioral kind of framework. So it's actually, I think, quite important to 
strip this topic away from those more like formal disciplines and we're citing peer reviewed stuff all the time and just talk about people and, and the way we're living now. And so the, the, the first piece I wanted to talk about was this really wild story about the Vice Canada office. Um, so for those who might not know, so Vice has like a ton of different verticals and their, one of their music verticals was called Noisy, and this they had a Toronto office in Canada. And uh, Kate, do you want to just like start off with some, I guess, background about uh, what you found was going down at the Vice Toronto office? Yes. So I used to live in Toronto before. I, I currently live in Brooklyn, but I lived in Toronto for four years, actually. While all of this stuff was taking place, although I had no idea at the time. And, you know, the Toronto media scene is pretty small. So the vice office in uh, downtown Toronto was like really one of the coolest places people could work. And it was a big magnet for young journalists. And so um, there was this story in 2017 published by um, Canada's National Post, these two great journalists, Sean Craig and Adrian Humphreys, broke it. Um, and it was saying that there had been a, a drug mule ring operating out of the Toronto office and that this noisy editor named Slava Pastuk had um, convinced a bunch of young people, including a former vice intern, to smuggle a large quantity of cocaine to Australia. And then in 2015, it all took place in 2015. The five people who took the drugs had all been arrested and sentenced uh, to, to prison in Australia. And then the story was sort of revealing that this guy had been, uh, you know, one of the masterminds behind this scheme. And reading it, I was just so... <laughs> I mean, it's an incredible piece of, of journalism. It was just so wild to me that, you know, a blogger could have been secretly also a drug trafficker. Um, and then I always wanted to know more. Like, it was basically a pretty dry piece of of newspaper feature writing, um, just like laying out the facts. But I wanted to know how this had happened, like how they had found themselves in this situation. And uh, so for years, I thought about this story. And in 2019, this year in February, Slava and another man named Ali Lalji were both arrested for conspiracy. And um, Slava was in Montreal where he had actually moved and, and changed his name and was sort of like living an under the radar life. Um, and, and Ali was working for a, a cannabis startup actually in Toronto. So they were arrested, and once I saw that news item, I thought maybe maybe this is the right time to go back and look into this story. Um, so I started calling around. Like I knew some people who had worked for Vice in, in the states, and you know, I just started doing some preliminary background reporting, asking about these guys because Ali Lalji had also worked for Vice um, in the sales department in Toronto. Um, and, and just for, just for listeners, like if you're working at a, a, in a newsroom, you're really not talking that much to like the business side, like the advertising people, there's usually like sort of a bit of like a firewall there. So it, it's sort of interesting that like this blogger was like buddy buddies with like an, an ad guy. Isn't that right? There's sort of like, yeah, that's yeah. been my experience. Like they don't really always, uh, mingle that much, but. Yeah, they had, uh, so they were arrested as co-conspirators. Um, and I was looking around, I, I followed Slava on Twitter. He followed me back and then he DM'd me, which was very surprising because it turned out he was actually a fan of the Ringers podcasts and wanted to talk about that. And I asked him, would you ever be open to someone interviewing you? Like, I have never heard you explain why you got into this. And he agreed. Um, 
this was in the spring, um, but he he wanted to talk in, in the summer. So there were a few months where I was just sort of waiting until he would talk to me. Um, and during that time, I was also trying to talk to Ali Walji. And also I was writing letters to the people who were incarcerated in Australia. Um, it, two of them had been released. So I was able to email with one of them, the other, but no one wanted to talk on the record except for Slava. Um, that's why, yeah. yeah well the thing is that you know I understand why no one wanted to talk uh well some of the people were in, in prison so it would have been complicated um Ali Lalji so he has actually not pled guilty he is his lawyer is anticipating that he will go to trial um in 2020 so you know obviously he wouldn't want to talk because he's still hoping to get out of this um, Slava decided to plead, had already decided to plead guilty when he decided to talk to me. So he was just sort of, uh, trying to get his side of the story on, on record. He also talked to reporters in, in Canada who work for a company called Canada Land. There's going to be a podcast, like a narrative podcast series, um, that they're putting out in January. That's also about this called, um, Cool Mules. <laughs> and yeah and so i'm excited yeah. to listen to that yeah, I, i'm excited for that too yeah they they go into even more depth than i did you know because they're i think it's going to be like a six or eight part series or something like that um so let's let's talk about the sort of logistics here so there's like i, I know um at one detail i liked is like slava drew you like a, a diagram or like a pyramid chart of like laying all this out and of course like there's a lot of unknowns probably still, but just like the the basics, like um, tell tell us about like where they flew to and like what sort of the almost like heist like uh, I guess tactics and getting from A to B to C with uh, what I guess were uh, you know pretty large quantities of cocaine. So if you want to sort of set the the scope of this, uh, that'd be awesome. Sure. So um, four of the people who took the drugs were Canadian and one was American. So, and one of them was Slava's roommate. One was a vice intern. One was a, a girl who was sort of a model and influencer who, who was connected to another guy in this world. One was a model from America and one was a party planner um, from Montreal. So these five people, they most of them started in either Canada or New York. They flew to Las Vegas. They waited in Las Vegas, and Slava helped them connect with these men who gave them luggage that was laced with um, 40 kilograms of cocaine, like bricks within the luggage. I talked to a lot of uh, people who study the global trafficking industry for this story, just for background. and. They were, most of them were kind of skeptical that it was actually, you know, directly linked to a cartel. They thought that maybe these men were, had already purchased the drugs from the cartel and then were now offloading them. Like it wasn't really a cartel operation. It was sort of like a, an, a weird amateur offshoot. That's like the theory. I don't, but it's, it's all up in the air, you know? Right. Um, it's like someone somewhere had large quantities of cocaine and that comes from somewhere, obviously. But this operation that you unpacked, yeah, had a bit of a amateurish vibe to it. <laughs> yeah. And so all of the cocaine was stamped with um, a logo Z8. Uh, so it all seemed to come from one place. And Slava was under the impression that... Um, it was from someone involved with the cartel had smuggled it across the border and, and had brought it to Vegas. So that, that makes sense, but it's like completely unverifiable. Um, so then from there, they took the packages. I think a few of them had another stop in Los Angeles and then they flew to Sydney at the airport they were caught. And from what I've, I've learned from people who study the global trafficking trade this was a very stupid way to try to smuggle drugs with, with that quantity. Um, people were telling me that there's, 
like density detectors in airports that would have easily tipped uh, security off to this. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like these bags, like a bag full of clothes, you know, shouldn't have this extra weight, right? Yeah. So they were sort of saying that it was a very old school method that most, like that's not how most drugs are smuggled in. They're smuggled in on boats and, and private planes, not commercially. Um, well, it's like, it's like the movie Blow. It's like they, they're just putting like the cocaine in the luggage and like going back and forth out of airports. Like, yeah, maybe in the 70s, like that could obviously work, but it seems a yeah. lot harder nowadays. Yeah, someone actually was like, that, that was a very 70s way of doing it. It's weird. Um, but on the other hand, Slava was saying, and like, first of all, I want to, I want to say he's not, I had to basically take everything he said with a massive grain of salt, like everything he told me I had to verify from at least, you know, a few other sources before I printed it, or I specifically said Slava says this, but I don't, that don't, that doesn't mean it's true. Yes, right. Because he, <laughs> he's not a reliable narrator, you know, but he, he seemed under the impression that people were doing this all the time i don't know this time it definitely did not work um they were all caught basically you know these these people who who went on this trip they all i've never met any of them they all seem like very sweet nice people who just got in way over their heads and didn't really understand the gravity of what they were doing they weren't even, they weren't told the quantity of the substances they were taking, and they also weren't told what they were smuggling. So they really did not, they didn't seem to grasp the severity. And they they were doing all this for, was it $10,000 a person? Per maximum, trip? maximum. Okay. Some people were doing it, like one of the mules who, um, luckily he is already, he's already out and he's back in New York and he's resumed a modeling career. Um, he was doing it for like barely any money at all because he, you know, they had sort of convinced him to do it, I think for around two or 5,000. Like, yeah. So like, this is not a lot of money. Right. No. And it's a huge risk, obviously, uh, to do this. And I think, you know, one, one reason why I particularly liked this piece though, is like, I think there's a lot of, uh, very, uh, sort of off-base perceptions of what drug dealing is, what it looks like, who does it, and um, that, like, so much of the arrests, at least in the U.S., for, uh, you know, quote-unquote trafficking and dealing really falls on uh, people very low in the chain. Like, it's so often um, people who are poor, people who don't have the resources or wherewithal to get, uh, you know, a, a livable income in like the mainstream regular economy, mm -hmm. a, a lot of people of color often, um, and a lot of people just like sort of on the margins. And so these people, you know, most of the time, uh, you know, there isn't like huge, uh, extensive, um, like, big financial gains happening at this level, but they are the ones who get arrested because they're the ones taking the risk. And I just think it's, it's important to, to get a, like a profile of someone who embarks on this uh, sort of adventure, uh, this misadventure, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that upset me so much while writing this story and reporting this story was the way that the people who got in trouble for this were all people of color, all young, no one was rich. They were, I mean, a lot of, some of them were actually doing pretty well financially, like the model, um, but they weren't, you know, they're not pow powerful people. They were just people who made a mistake, young people. And the people who have not been brought to justice for this, you know, the people who are Slava's bosses, were, I mean, I haven't, they're all white. <laughs> they're all from rich families. Um, they might still be doing this and they were the ones really profiting financially. So it just really drove home how 
the criminal justice system often ends up penalizing the least powerful and allowing, you know, the people who actually deserve to be held accountable for creating drug trafficking rings go free. Um, I'm still pissed off about it. I hope that they, I hope that they get caught. Right. It's like, I think there's, um, and I especially think like right now with, with, with like the overdose crisis being such a, a visible problem that, um, there's a lot of anger out there. Uh, I definitely hear it on behalf of friends and loved ones and families who have, um, you know, lost a, a friend or a loved one to an overdose and, the immediate reaction is like, go get the dealer or, you know, someone must be held accountable for this. And I just, my, after thinking about this stuff for, for years and years and years, I, I find that the, the moral complexity of drug selling and drug dealing is, um, it's very hard to, to, to land or uh, on just a, a, a punitive approach for me like I think that there's a lot of sympathy out there now for people who are addicted to drugs as there should be and that the um you know their side of the transaction like they're the ones buying the drugs and people are calling for a a a more sort of therapeutic and less punitive approach to that but there's a whole other side of this transaction that uh you know really gets no sympathy or is there's only room for, for punishment. And I think drug dealing presents like a very complex issue for like the criminal justice reformers and for the you know progressive prosecutors out there. Like, have you thought at all about that kind of uh, like the morality of these transactions? Yes. And I mean, I do want to, I guess I should clarify that in general, I don't really support incarceration for nonviolent crimes at all. And I am really very, very rarely in favor of incarcerating anybody, um, including people who, you know, are found guilty of drug-related crimes when it comes to, but then that feeling is complicated when it comes to people who are high up on the supply chain. I do, I do, you know, want, want them to face some consequences for their actions. When it came to this story, it was interesting because I was talking like, Slava was a middleman. Um, he was dealing drugs. He, you know, he really fucked up the lives of these five young people. And a lot of people I talked to were really mad that I was even speaking with him because of that. You know, they were like, he deserves to rot in jail. He deserves nothing. I, I just didn't feel that way. I thought that he was also in a, in a more similar situation to the mules than he was to the suppliers. Um, he was the same age as most of them and also was from a precarious financial background and, you know, was, was misguided certainly and, uh, not behaving himself. But I just felt like in many ways he was, he was in the same circumstances that swept I, one of the big reasons I want to write about drugs in the way that I do is to push back on the idea that uh, criminalizing them and, and, and criminalizing the people who do them and who sell them is the right approach to making our society healthy and saving people's lives, because I don't think that it is. And it... Yeah, no, I mean, I... I come from like a very, very similar uh, approach when I, when I write about these stories, when I, when I write these stories too, and that I have seen what happens when people are criminalized and are like systematically isolated and alienated and punished. And that seems to make their lives worse while not helping anyone else. And then I've also seen, and we can talk about this too, and what, you know, your trips to, to Canada and the overdose prevention sites 
revealed mm -hmm. to you is what happens when people are connected to services that are uh, compassionate and non-judgmental and and um, approach drug use not from like this you know public enemy number one let's vanquish the the drugs and you know eradicate uh, drugs from society but just like this is a very human uh, behavior and um, something that humans have always done and will always do and that insofar as we're trying to like use brute force to, to stop this where we're really going down the wrong track and and I think um, yeah I'm definitely definitely want to get to your your other story um, and before before doing so I, I I just wonder if there's anything else we can we can learn from this like <laughs> And maybe this is more from like a media angle, but like the, the the culture advice and sort of like the 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 sort of like edgy illicitness that that vice's brand had uh, or does have still. I think um, like <laughs> one of Slava's defenses wasn't he sort of saying that this was all for journalism at some point. <laughs> Oh, yeah. He, I mean, his lawyer brought it up in court, and that was something that he told me repeatedly. But I actually, I did not really completely, I don't really buy it. Um, I think he, I think he did it for a number of reasons, but I don't necessarily think it was for journalism. Um, that yeah. is what he says. That is what yeah. he says. Yeah. But, uh, and it's it's a it's a very compelling storyline but when you think about how he actually acted like he never told a single editor about it he went on a drug smuggling trip uh and made money without telling anyone about it it just the way that the way that he approached it i do think that maybe he was considering writing about it eventually and that was part of it, but I don't think it was necessarily the driving reason, as he argued. Um, but he, he, if he was uh, speaking with you, he would definitely say otherwise. So yeah. I do think that uh, the way that the journalists at Vice during that time were encouraged to write about drugs and also like their models with Shane Smith and Gavin McGinnis and uh, Sarush and the way that the founding editors of Vice had sort of really celebrated drug culture and celebrated doing drugs at work. Like there was a, a Vice article that talked about how Vice had like bought a bunch of cocaine for these guys who then got really fucked up and pretended to be hamsters. Like <laughs> when you... <laughs> When you create that sort of atmosphere, you're you're creating an atmosphere where, where people get confused about how they're supposed to be incorporating substances into their lives and into their professional lives. Yeah. I, but you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna be like overly harsh on Vice today because I do think that the company is really trying to make changes and they also do a lot of really good drug journalism so I don't I don't want to like come out here and have some sort of blanket diss uh for oh. like 2019 vice at all because because I I really respect a lot of the journalism that they do over there and oh um, me, me too great. definitely yeah, I, I have I have a lot of friends who work there like I I really love Keegan Hamilton's journalism like his coverage of drug dealing and trafficking is is very very powerful and i've freelanced for so back when tonic uh which was vice's like sort of health and science vertical mm -hmm. you know I, i've done like 10 or 12 stories about you know drugs in some form or some fashion for for vice and and yeah there's um i think uh i've definitely have been allowed room at Vice to, to write stories and pursue things and report on things that um, other outlets probably wouldn't consider stories or, or, or don't think are important. But um, so the, the, the Vice culture 
yeah, it, I think it's like a double edge. You know, it could definitely cut one way where you get good good journalism and and stories that otherwise, uh, you know, wouldn't really be pursued uh, professionally. But then you get this um, sort of like uh, this libertine kind of uh, brand of debauchery that uh, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, I don't even I don't know to what extent that that's real anymore, but it just seems more of like a, the mythology of vice rather than vice as such. Yeah, and one thing that I was trying to convey with that story was how Slava basically just bought into the mythology of vice and and had this whole idea of who he could be as a vice guy and it wasn't it didn't really even line up with the reality of vice at the time so much like he he was going so further out than anyone else um but yeah i mean just in general probably don't do drugs at work (laughs) (laughs) yeah true true um and i think on that note you know we've talked a lot about this uh crazy Toronto story and and I'm I'm really glad that you took a deep dive and, and unpacked that. And I think the you know the, the the first thing um I think by you that I ever read was the piece on um overdose prevention sites. And um just for listeners, this was a, a really long and, and and empathetic and in-depth piece about about not just the the sort of movement to um uh, enact a a new innovative policy intervention in the U.S., which would be a, a supervised consumption site or a supervised injection site or overdose prevention site, whatever we're calling them these days. It was really about how uh, the way we think about addiction and the way we treat addiction, um, you know, is is like very much outdated and and lagging behind the rest of the world and. Um, what what Kate, I think you did so well was was like go to Canada and um, very much contrast what you saw there with with what's going on here. And um, to to start on this conversation, um, yeah, do you you know like I I have my own personal connections to this topic, and you know many many years ago I I had uh, like a an issue with opioids that. Have I've since, you know, resolved and have moved on from, and it's not a huge part of my life anymore. But um, I write a lot of stories from the perspective, like, wow, when I was addicted, what did I wish I knew, or what did I wish my parents knew, or my friends and family knew? And uh, I try to answer a lot of those questions with with my work, and that's uh, a lot of what drives me. And do you want to talk about what drove you to the subject? Yeah. Um, so in, in 2017, um, my cousin Joe Nibs um, died of an opioid overdose and at his funeral, uh, well, after it, there was a gathering at my aunt and uncle's house and a few women were handing out like those rubber, um, like those rubber like Lance Armstrong bracelets, but they were for drug induced homicide laws. Um, and my mom got really mad and I was just sort of like, I was so, I was grieving and I was really sad and I didn't really know what was going on at the time, but I, uh, went home, flew back to New York the next week and was just sort of Googling what these women had been talking about. And I was horrified. And I, I emphasized with where they were coming from, you know, they wanted to stop people from dying too. And this was the way that they thought was best to approach it. But the more that I read read about drug induced homicide laws, and I was thinking about, you know, my cousin and his friends, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't want to get too much into the specifics of his life, because I feel like that his family's immediate family story to tell but um I just couldn't help thinking that what did they want his friends to be arrested and it just seemed like a really strange and backwards and unhelpful way to go about uh trying to make the situation better and I also so I lived in Canada for a long time um 
first in Montreal and then Toronto, but I also spent time in British Columbia um, in my early 20s. And so I had actually seen the overdose prevention space um, in Vancouver in like 2007 or so. Um, so I had sort of known about overdose prevention spaces like in the back of my mind for a long time. And I remember being really like interested in in how it all worked when I found out about it. Um, and so I I just kept researching and I kept thinking, the more that I kept researching, the more that it became apparent to me that a lot of the mainstream narratives about substance use disorders and the overdose crisis were not explaining how how like just fundamentally wrong a lot of the thinking about our relationships to substances were and and I wanted to write something for like a mainstream audience that connected um like this specific issue of overdose prevention spaces with the need to rethink how we talk about people who use drugs and how we talk about drugs and I, I just I just sort of got obsessed with it. It was like I, I couldn't I felt really helpless after Joe died and like I, I couldn't I didn't know how to make it better. There was no way to really make it better, but I just wanted to do something to sort of like honor him. And this was the thing that I thought I might be able to do. Yeah, that well thanks for sharing that. And I think um your your approach, given what you you know saw at, at the funeral and this and like the sort of reacting to the the impulse to get justice or, or to punish people, um, I, I think like I've had that reaction too, especially with my own friends who who have died. Where it's like I know, for example, in one instance, and this is one of my closest friends who was one of my like first friends to. To, to, to die from an overdose, it was like one friend sold him a benzo, the other friend sold him a bag of heroin, and neither of them knew that the other had made the sale, and then my friend took both of them and never woke up, and it's like um, in this, in like the, the aftermath of this like tragedy, he was like 20 years old, you know, people were all talking about the the two guys who you know each sold the drugs and um like for a minute there i for sure thought that something like that people were going to get arrested and charged and and yeah i from that moment was just you know have really thought like yeah wow what a we're all in the midst of this tragedy and to make this tragedy worse would be to you know, literally compound it with sending two more young people to jail and ruining not one life, but now three lives. Like it just sounded so backwards at the time. Yeah. And and yeah, and I've written a lot about drug-induced homicide the past couple of years. And um, I think it's really hard. It's, it's a really hard uh, narrative to, to push back against because you get families who are grieving and they're approached by uh, the police or a prosecutor who say, you know, we can get the guy who did this. And that's a very tempting solution for a grieving family. Of course. And that's, that's why I just wanted to offer a, a different, a a story of people who are thinking about things differently. And that's it also sort of, it really came together for me when I met Carol Katz Beyer, who is um, the, she is a woman who I talk about at the beginning of, of this story. And she was just an invaluable person to talk to. She um, runs a nonprofit called Families for Sensible Drug Policies. And she lost two of her sons, um, to overdoses and is very adamantly in favor of progressive drug policy and just uh, I I feel like she 
is on to something and it's been pretty heartening to see uh, I feel like the the idea is gaining mainstream support uh, when I started writing the piece I asked every there were so many democratic presidential uh, uh, candidates but I asked all of them you know whether they supported um, opening overdose prevention spaces I think I was specifically talking about safe house in Philadelphia because um, it it was in in the middle of the lawsuit. Yeah, it was like a very tangible thing that was going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. and no one really came out. No one was really coming out and and saying this is my cause or anything like that. Um, but since the piece has come out in like the past few months, a lot of the candidates have specifically said that they support overdose prevention spaces. And I think it's just becoming a little bit more, people are starting to understand that there's not really much, anything to lose and there's so much to potentially be gained from. I think, I think you got a a retweet from Andrew Yang. Is that right? (laughs) Yes. The Yang gang. (laughs) The Yang gang were all up in my mentions for like 48 hours. Um, And they were very nice. I, 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 cannot complain but that was really really heartening to see um you know politicians on a national stage paying attention to the issue and actually seeing them uh come out in support of it like in real time yeah i so back in may i wrote um a piece for politico about sort of joe biden's history of you know, really just bad legislation. And then, but specifically how some of that legislation has been used to uh, argue against supervised consumption sites like, or overdose prevention sites, specifically the crack house statute. And I asked his campaign multiple times, like where they're at on this. And I just really got like a canned response that that um, didn't, you know, really acknowledge the crack house statute, how it's being used today, now, and then also didn't get like any yes or no about where Joe Biden stands on overdose prevention sites. And um, then I wrote another piece about like the the Rave Act, which is like a, uh, another sort of iteration of the crack house statute. And, and so I think that was like, months after the first one and again the campaign sort of gave me nothing so it is it is like (laughs) sad that the front runner can like just not have any policy or any position on this like really important thing going on but I do think um as of late yeah you're right I think since the safe house decision came down which we covered on narcotica that they're um i think it a lot it gave people permission to like uh be more vocal about it or take a position on it yes and i do think that this is an issue so many people i i talked to while i was reporting said this once you learn more about it you tend to come out more strongly in favor for it because it's it's something that is hard to grasp for a person, you know, any person walking down the street to say, to tell them, hey, what do you think about this idea where we make, you know, the world safer for drug users by letting them do drugs uh, without uh, fear of criminalization in space? It's hard for people to comprehend as a, a policy solution and as a treatment solution. But then once you go into more detail and explain, how it has worked for decades in Europe and Canada and the lack of negative consequences and in, in the, the bounty of tangible health, positive health consequences. Um, the evidence is just overwhelmingly on, on, its, on the side of the harm reductionists. And it's really hard to, I just don't understand how people argue against it after they see how it has worked in other places considering the severity of the overdose crisis and the fact that we have a truly horrific number of people dying 
and we aren't doing anything. I mean, we're doing some things that are working in some ways, but you know, we've, we have to do something and why not try this? It just, it seems, yeah. So that's hard to understand. Like, I, I really think about that too, is like, there are people, you know, on Twitter or someone like I get in fights with, like, who, you know, will say like, eh, you know, like, maybe these will help, but like, that's not a priority or I don't care about this or people who are like actively against it. And it's, it is sort of mind boggling. It's like the status quo, what we're doing now has resulted in, like you said, just atrocious numbers of people dead. And then on top of that, huge numbers of people with HIV and hepatitis C. And if there's an intervention that can, uh, uh, tackle all three of those things at once. It's like, how do you not uh, like see the light? Like it, it's 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 really hard to wrap my head around. Yeah, and I do understand that it's a solution or a treatment that has limited applicability for people in rural communities. You know, they're not going to drive to one of these spaces, and it's just one small step, but. I think it's really an integral treatment for people to come out in support of and to understand why they should, because it sort of holds the the thinking behind it is is a thinking that requires a shift from like the status quo approach to addiction. And I think if you can get on board with overdose prevention spaces or safe consumption spaces, you'll be in a better position to be thinking about people who use drugs as as people who deserve medical treatment instead of people who deserve to be punished. Yeah, and and that's why you know your I think your piece really stood out because it, it did um, make that connection between the uh, thinking conceptualizing of addiction and, and drug use as a matter of health and in this country in 2019 if you are sick we don't punish you we don't lock you up we don't throw you in a cage like there are no illnesses out there today um, that that is the treatment and that is a thing that we think helps people sadly because there's such little infrastructure the majority of these people do wind up in jails and and other you know kind of crummy systemic and uh sort of public services that 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 might have a lot of like that might be part of this like elaborate system of punishments and things like that but um i think like pretty much everyone agrees like if you are sick punishing you and isolating you is going to make you sicker and Mm -hmm. that's something that for addiction um specifically it we're still not totally there like i think the the scientific community and like the health community and probably a majority of people lay people especially now because of overdoses do like think that but there's still uh i think in american culture a um the the sort of like bootstrap puritanical uh residue that gets in the way with addiction Mm -hmm. and one of the things that carol was telling me was about the need for people to understand relapse as a part of getting better um that really stood out to me as something that it, it just feels really important for people to understand that the likelihood of relapse is so high we need to prepare for it and not be so quick to punish people who who have setbacks um, as they try to either stop using substances or to use substances in a way that's more healthy for them. Um, because right now, I mean, it's. I, I also think it connects with the way that the rehabilitation industry is is broken and and needs like quite major overhaul. Um, yeah. Yeah, I um I've met Carol a, a few times at like some conferences, and she really is like uh, 
such a hero. I mean, to lose two children um, and to uh, like that would destroy me. Like I don't have kids, but I'm sure if I lost two of them in basically the same way around the same time, like I would just like crawl into a hole and never come out. But like that there are people out there like Carol who can go through that and like take it on and basically organize her life around preventing any other mother from experiencing what she experienced is like why I sort of love writing about drugs and why I love covering them because it's full of a like incredible people like Carol who um, I think have overcome tremendous uh, circumstances and uh, just do incredible things with their lives and it's like to um, like I don't know of that many areas uh, of like health and culture and all these um, topics where the people who are working in it are just like amazing. Mm-hmm. I know I, it's it's such a tough subject because you know to cover drugs is also to frequently cover health crises and death but then when you I mean Carol is one of these people that like makes me hopeful about America and so I I feel really grateful that she spoke with me and that I get to and it wasn't just her like I spoke to so many wonderful people for that story a lot of people I couldn't even include in it because it was so long as it was I had to streamline um but you know they were they were all really incredible and uh, it just it's easy to get so so dark about it when you think about just the like long legacy of institutional failure when it comes to drug policy in America but meeting all these individuals really makes me hopeful yeah I I agree I think there's a lot to despair over and I I've just finished sort of writing like a a decade in review piece about sort of like from 2010 to 2020 like what happened in America when it comes to drugs and the sort of like, there's a a lot of uh, terrible things, but then there's also, yeah, a lot of um, inspiring and exciting things. So it's definitely like, um, I, I definitely lose sight of the good things and tend to zoom in on the really, really bad things. But um, yeah, I do hope at least, you know, anyone listening to this, like, does know that there are um, people out there who are just, like, working their asses off to to make uh, this society uh, healthier and happier. This was a really great conversation, Kate. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, I could, honestly, I could talk about this for, like, yeah, <laughs> I could talk about this for a day. I I guess I'll say that in general, I hope that the conversation around substances in America starts to focus on a lot of different things, including just the failures of prohibition, um, which is something that I've been thinking about essentially my whole life because I'm from a dry ward in the most Irish Catholic neighborhood in Chicago, which was uh, basically like a little a little enclosed space to learn about the failures of prohibition because it was a space where you weren't allowed to buy alcohol. Um, but then right on the other side of the ward, there was about 34 Irish bars that everyone just went to all the time. Um, wait, so I, I live in Chicago right now. Where are you talking about? Beverly. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. So that's like South, right? Yeah. It's okay. like a hundredth South. I mean, Chicago people will know yeah. um, from the Southwest side. Um, yeah. It's a dry Beverly is dry, but then right West Beverly is not. And oh my God, you should totally write <laughs> about that. That's amazing. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I would, I will say that just, I, I just hope that becomes part of the conversation more in the future. Yes. Uh, I think I agree with that. I'm sure a lot of people listening agree with that. And, and that's why like I, the last thing I'll say is like, it's really hard to be like a quote unquote reporter, journalist covering this stuff because the second you begin to question the like 
basic assumptions of something like the Controlled Substances Act or the past 80 years of uh, drug laws and prohibition, like you sort of get um, really disillusioned and it's people, I, at least I think they perceive me as some like radical or some some like, I don't know, like mm-hmm. super lefty, uh, whatever, but it's just like, no, like I, I have really boring politics. I'm like a very run of the mill, like social Democrat. I think people should have healthcare. Like it's really simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't think people should get punished for, for using drugs. Like it's really, really simple. But um, the, like the, if you just go look out the window, like things are so bad right now. And that's given like the harshest laws and manageable and, and, it's so it's clear as day that like this is not working and to just question it um yeah people get really i don't know intense about it and it's it's just like it's it's hard yeah i i agree and i applaud what you're doing like i feel like i when I, i just sort of dip my toes in here and there and to be on this beat is is a commitment that i just applaud you for making um but yeah, I hope I hope the 2020s people just start. It's really a pragmatic approach. Yes. Like, yeah. Yeah, I think that's what you were talking about the with the Switzerland people. They're like, you know, we're kind of conservative and like super homogenous and you kind of, we all believe the same things, but we're also very pragmatic and we want clean parks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay, Kate. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to talk and uh, I'll be excited to look out for uh, more of your work. Hey, thanks for listening to Narcotica. You can follow us on Twitter at Narcocast or on Narcocast.com. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morat, Zachary Siegel, and Troy Farah. Our co-producer this episode was Gara Farah, and our theme music is composed by Glassboy. Narcotica is an ad-free program, and we like to keep it that way, but that would not be possible without the help from our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Thank you guys so, so much. Your contributions help keep this program free of corporate influence. If you're a fan of the program, you can join dozens of other pro-drug advocates on our Patreon. But if Patreon is not for you, you can still help us by getting the word out. Give us a rating wherever you listen to your playlist. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, blah, 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 wherever you get your stuff. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode or just want to say hi, you can leave us an email at tips at narcocast.com. That's all, folks. Have a nice night.